This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Now, how long have you all been doing this specific podcast? Because I'm pretty new. I only came in fall 2019. Did you do it because of pandemic and you felt disconnected? A little bit. We have been talking in the Provost Teaching Fellows about wanting to do a podcast. And the, the pandemic was a bit of a nudge. But our problem was we didn't know how to do it. And then... Voila! We have Michelle! Hi, Michelle! Are you the podcast queen? Like, for every podcast? Absolutely. I mean, uh, absolutely no. That sounds fun to edit. Yeah, that's what they all say. We are as people, shapes, we are as teachers. Like I say, every four years I'm popping. I'm a military kid, I'm an Air Force brat. I also write fiction and do other crazy stuff. Creativity is imbued in every single thing I do. I came here to be an aerospace engineer. How did you get interested in politics? Uh, I'm sorry, Stephanie, that's really none of anybody's business. (laughs) We're all steeped in the same tea. Welcome to the other side of campus. Hello and welcome to the other side of campus. I am Dixie Stanforth, Professor of Instruction in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education and a Provost Teaching Fellow. And I'm Katie Dawson, Associate Professor in the Theater and Dance Department. Today, we're talking with College of Fine Arts Associate Professor of Practice, Megan Hildebrandt. Megan Hildebrandt is an artist, an educator, and an arts in health advocate. Professor Hildebrandt's artwork explores autobiography, the passage of time, illness, narrative, and recovery from trauma. Professor Hildebrandt is also an NEA Artworks grant winner for the aesthetics of health curriculum she developed for Interlochen Arts Academy. She now offers the Aesthetics of Health course for UT Austin, for which she won a 2021 University of Texas Tower Award for Outstanding Community-Based Learning course. Megan, we are so excited to have you here with us today, and we wonder if you could share your story with us. We would love to hear how you came to love art and how you have flourished in both your teaching and expression of your life story through your art. That's such a great opening question, and I'm so happy to be here. I first came to art, actually, through a different illness experience than um, my cancer diagnosis. So I guess I'll just start with, you know, like a lot of young women, maybe particularly in the coming up in the 90s and early aughts, I did struggle with an eating disorder when I was in high school. And because of that, I um, had to stop doing all athletics. And that's how I found art and theater, actually. It's interesting now, as I think back, that from a very early time in my um, creative development and as a young person, I have consistently paired conditions, diagnoses, and the creative act. I actually had my training um, when I was at University of Michigan at Stamps. I was mostly a performance artist, actually. I mean, you know, put theater and art together. But, you know, so I I did a lot of performance, um, sort of experimental performance work using my body as the sort of site a lot. And now when you think about flashing forward to when I started my MFA degree in studio art down in Tampa, the very first month of my graduate program, I found a lump on my neck that kind of grew increasingly 
pretty large over the course of 24, 36 hours. It, it was a couple years before the Affordable Care Act. And my luck, it was a, only a few days shy of me getting the graduate student insurance that we were offered at USF, right? And so I, at this moment, fell into a problem that actually a lot of young adult cancer survivors face for a variety of reasons, not just insurance coverage, but I had a very hard time getting diagnosed. It may be surprising to you to learn that there's still the prevailing narrative that you're young, healthy, and something else must be going on. So on top of not having insurance, uh, and also having just relocated for graduate school, and now having this mysterious lump, I um, was under obviously a lot of stress. I, I was also trying to just focus on the first month of graduate school. So as time went on, and I'm now, you know, a month later walking around Tampa in August with like a winter scarf covering this lump, just like, I'll just keep walking. I'm 25 and it's important to get to my studio. I finally was able to get a diagnosis, but by that point it it had progressed to stage 2A. And I'm pretty confident that if I was able to get an earlier assessment and proper diagnosis, um, I wouldn't have had to have as much chemo, but that's a conjecture, of course. So I then began a regime regimen, um, seven months of ABDV chemo. I was treated at Moffitt Cancer Center, which conveniently was a five-minute walk from my graduate art studio. I say that in a perky way, but it was actually, it was convenient. So I could, so again, we see a pairing. So I would literally, I experienced the chemo deck and then alongside it, five minutes going back to my other world, which was making art in the studio. And that's kind of the springboard I usually start with, just because if you compare that to the teenage experience, this being just thrown into really heavy duty chemo, losing my hair, you know, every two weeks feeling like crap only to feel better and then go back to chemo again and being trying to be productive in the first year of a three-year MFA studio program really changed my work. And I stopped being performance artist at that time after I developed a significant mistrust of my body as sight, right? Thank you for sharing that. I, I hope that since some time has gone by that you can share it, you know, fr from a position of being able to look back and see a lot of those lessons. You mentioned the proximity, the nearness of the, the physical treatment. Do you think that, that just kind of the gift of having those two things so closely linked helped move you forward in seeing that connectedness? and not perhaps seeing it as something that was so separated where you had to travel for two hours and get your chemo and then you would drive back and you had these two separate worlds, but instead you rather saw this as just a part of what your life was like right then. 
Well, it's a funny question because, in fact, I was very determined to keep them separate. It could have been three hours away. It could have been two, even a shorter walk, same building. But at that very first year, the only in my brain, the only thing cancer could not touch was my art. Hilariously, or ironically, guess what I was making art about that first year? Natural disasters. <laughs> Sinkhole. So I, I just, it just immerse myself in the danger of Florida nature and the danger of sinkholes. I got obsessed with shark attacks. I got obsessed with like red ants. I got obsessed with alligators. And I'm making these admittedly pretty crappy animations and drawings all about like the danger. And of course, I'm totally denying any connection. My professors, of course, I'll see it. And they're like, you know, have you ever thought that the sinkhole is cancer? I'm like, no, it's not. That sinkhole. Maybe there's something there. I know, right? No, I'm like, no, I'm just interested in the amount of lightning strikes that seem to be happening in the area. And it's now, of course, like you say, hindsight, it's so clear. But that certainly that first year, while I was in active treatment, it was not about cancer, even though it was so about cancer. It was about like larger cancer, I guess. But then it moved. It changed over the three years. Katie, go ahead. You look like you have something. I'm just connecting so much to what you're saying to my own work in a way, Megan, as someone yeah. who also is a professor of the, you know, works with arts MFA students. We both work with MFA students and undergrad students in the arts. And I, you know, I often think part of my work is about helping students reconnect their personal journey, their identities, their their wholeness to their artistic expression. You don't need to go to this school and study to be me. I, you're going to study to be you. And the best version of you is the one that is most authentic with your yes. challenge and your sometimes trauma and healing spaces. And I mean, I'm just really struck by your the ways the artistic and creative investigation became an outlet or a, a, a place for, I don't, maybe healing's too strong of a term for it, but but a place to sort of, evacuate and 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 see through and and check out what was going on even if it was a lot of like you know sinkholes and shark attacks do you pull that in now into your teaching i mean do you have moments with your students i mean that is like my and it's interesting because like i mean even when i was performance artist i was trained by like you know one of the nea4 um holly hughes who came out of yeah so she was like my yeah. main mentor right in undergrad so it was all about like like i took a class from her the aesthetics of health that my class here is actually modeled after called aesthetics of autobiography like right we were reading like autobiograph uh, autobiography of a face we were reading like all of these really rich texts and her like thing is like do you just do it on a stage and it doesn't doesn't matter what the stage is. So I was already, it's interesting because I came from a highly autobiographical training and then perceived that I was pushing it away while I didn't, well, it wasn't really because it's so ingrained in me. And indeed, you're completely right now. I mean, my teaching philosophy is 
it's just like the right what you know thing, right? And especially because I like my favorite students to work with are actually like the, our first year students, our our first people, <laughs> our first people. And and I just like think that even when they see a still life in front of them, what is if, then I have them make the still life out of their own objects, right? Like there is room for autobiography everywhere. Now, what's interesting is in the year after I stopped, the year after my my obsession with lightning strikes and shark attacks, I then moved into um, creating, I got a small grant to create an, um, like a self-published graphic novel about my female young adult cancer experience because at in 2010 and 11 at that point and I think at that point I I was immersing myself in like Harvey Picar you know I was immersing myself in like these more male driven narratives in within graphic novels usually white men about either watching their moms go through cancer or maybe co-written with their spouse about their cancer journeys and I really wanted to do something to shatter that and because I just got mad. The only graphic novel I was able to find was this cancer vixen. It's like, you know, all very pinkwashed is what we say in the cancer world. It's like basically like, cancer's so sexy. I'm a cartoonist for the New Yorker. I never lost my hair. I have high heels and wear lipstick and I'm still cute. Okay. So that was the tone and I hated it. Oh my. Right. So I just, I, I wanted to make one that was truth, truer to my own experience. And that became tunnel visions in which, and I'll share, I can share this if y'all need images, but that was um, really focused on my fear of a loss of fertility, which I, they were talking to me about because I didn't have the money to go, you know, freeze my eggs. They were talking to me a lot about like, you know, dating will be hard. And I'm like, it's already hard. It's even harder when you don't got eyebrows. So you want to talk to me about that? Right. Like, like, you know, th- there's like things they don't say. And then there's and there's things they say. And that a lot of it is still being like taken from talking to people in their age and they're trying to apply it to young adults. So that second year, I really delved and I became, um, I began drawing myself as a character, which I think was a me sublimating my interest in performance and narrative. I'm really interested in all of this. And, you know, in your kind of intro, you talk about yourself as an arts and health advocate. So thinking about all these ideas, Megan, how does that sort of grow into your place as an arts and health advocate? Like, where do you see you doing that work now? I really like as an educator, researcher, the scholar and artist working in places of tension. I think it's really valuable when two things that don't seem to go easily together, we demonstrate and show our students and make it clear that the world goes around because creative people make things go together that don't belong together. And when I say I'm an arts and healthcare advocate, I want to also differentiate that from the field of art therapy, which is not what I am. But a lot of people do sort of like be like, oh, you're a therapist or, you know, so so while art therapy um, is prescriptive and has like a, a set series of outcomes that usually and often involve the patient making what 
I have become interested in is what are the effects of high quality, original, contemporary art on the walls of different clinical spaces? So curatorial practices that sort of bump up against the hotel art or only show them nature because that's only the thing that that calms them down. Oh, abstraction is bad because then they can go play. Like it assumes all these things about patients that are sort of weirdly authoritative and patronizing. But what my biggest focus as arts and healthcare advocate is what happens if a patient or clinician encounters the act of making in a clinical setting? So if you walk into your annual mammogram, that's a place of anxiety. What happens if someone is in the waiting room, looking outside of the waiting room window, making a portrait of say, the fall foliage? And how can that slightly disrupt your experience? If I'm walking in to visit my baby in the NICU, Again, a place of anxiety. What happens if there is a string quartet right outside the NICU that I can start to hear? Okay, so this is visual art, but I'm really interested in all of the arts. I think a lot about spaces that can become activated, where art can become part of the architecture and making becomes part of the architecture of the clinical space. And I'm specifically interested in the the idea of mirror neurons. That's why like Bob Ross got so popular on Netflix during during COVID, right? Is because like we want to be painting, like 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 we can imagine ourselves doing. And can that take us out of our worry for just a moment? So Megan, I'm hearing you talk about creative process, but also it's not the patient themselves engaging in the creative process, right? It's being in view or in the presence of others that are creating. So instead of the hospital being or the medical space being a place of falling apart or deficit, that there is this capturing of creative impulse and generation or generative, there's sort of a generative thing. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. And I would add that while um, definitely we've had events or in the past, you know, five years, I've been doing this kind of work, definitely events with certain populations in certain places, they very much are doing art. Okay. But my focus is also on avoiding clinician burnout. So we also have done in the past, and I'm hoping to get back to this here, after hours workshops um, where that are student-led um, ceramics workshops, right? Like observational painting, to be able to decompress within your place of work, but in a totally different mindset before you go home for our frontline, for our frontline caregivers. Yeah, you know, I, I'm thinking a lot of things. This idea of of advocacy within the health spaces, I think, is so much bigger than than what I was envisioning initially. There's almost a socio-ecological framework here where it moves from the interpersonal all the way out to the environmental to policy changes within some of these medical spaces. And it's a beautiful way, I think, to expand our understanding of what that might mean to be an advocate within the healthcare community. 
If, if it would be okay, I would love to read a little piece of your artistic statement that really described your work as exploring autobiography, the passage of time, illness, narrative, and recovery from trauma via figurative and abstract drawings and paintings. And Katie has had the joy of visiting your arts for the Aesthetics of Health course, which I have not, but I plan to. And I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about this really innovative, award-winning undergraduate course that you have been able to offer to our students and where you're sharing about these intersections and really building on this advocacy that you've just described. Yeah, so I would say the advocacy I just described is pre-COVID advocacy. <laughs> so so when we um, were able to get the class on the books, it was all going to be in person. And I was like, I've done this. I've got this on lock. I did this in Michigan. I will do this. And then like COVID happened and it became both the worst time to try to offer a class like this and also the best time because no other year I did it in person were the students ever able to imagine that one day they could be patients. And now it was front of mind for the participants. So I say that to just mention that the iterations that I offered in last spring and that we're going to continue, but with a little bit more in person this coming spring, were offered in hybrid mode. And that turned out to be a huge gift and actually really shifted the focus from the previous iterations with um that were with teenagers that were with um yeah. That is awesome. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? I think yes. we'd all love to hear how that turned out. Yeah. So first of all, we scaffolded the class. And I, when I say we, I say, I mean myself and my main collaborator over at Livestrong Cancer Institutes at Del Med, Robin Richardson. We scaffolded this class to be a series of nine patient portraits. And they were spread throughout the semester. And each of the patients would be on Zoom in the comfort of their own home. They could wear whatever they want. We wanted the, I think we had 15 students in the class were all there doing portraits in whatever way they wanted, whatever medium, totally open medium as the patient or caregiver or family member or survivor talked about their story. Very concerned about a mutual benefit and an exchange. So rather than being passive listeners, it's very different for me to sit here and listen to you two tell me a story than for me to be drawing you as you're moving and talking and in a place of comfort, especially if you're immunocompromised, especially during a pandemic, right? So it really worked exactly. So it really worked in our favor. And I want to say that our participants who were, you know, the ones telling the narratives did not have to talk about cancer at all if they didn't want to. One of them wanted to only talk about every place he had traveled in his life and his love of printmaking, Professor Chesney. Um, so I'm thinking too about another, um, a father of a pediatric patient who, then the kid is eight year old and thriving. And his dad, who's named Ricardo, wanted to just, his, his focus was on the narrative. But anytime that a student would ask, and how was that for you? Right. 
he would say, no, I'm just Vicente's dad. I'm just talking about Vicente's story. So, so these were all, every story was different. So what we, what we really emphasized in this was that there, the danger of the single story of a single cancer experience, right? And so, and as we moved through all of the work became richer. All of the work was really different depending on the tone and the personality and the way that the patients then wanted to tell their stories. And then I want to also mention that students in this class get HIPAA training and training from the Livestrong Cancer Institute's social work team who talk about the difference between pity and empathy and sympathy and knowing how, how to present yourself and how to be professional in these settings. The other part of the class is for personal response projects because the students are, while they're drawing and giving, they're still hearing a lot of stuff that is still heavy for an 18 to 22 to, you know. And so in those projects, they are offered, I might say, you know, show me a healing process in three parts, open media. We might do, we designed um, our ideal healthcare settings with like, in like little sort of like dioramas, right? So then the students are bringing their own lived experiences in. So, I mean, I'm not surprised that we did see a lot of redesigned therapy rooms thinking about the trauma our students have gone through in the past two years. The way the class was redesigned was necessary because of COVID, but it was really fruitful and exciting to see it in this new iteration. That is so exciting. Would would you clarify one thing for me? Because I'm not familiar with the outcomes. You referred several times to the product and what they produced. What were they producing? And did it need to be in a particular medium or did they have an open selection of what they wanted to do? Could you describe that a little bit for us? Yes, absolutely. So in the patient portraits could be representational. They could be, you know, digital. I, I, we had a student who made an animation for each portrait. We had another student who made a lot of little books like zines for each portrait. We had students make sculptures. We had students, and then we had a lot of students making sort of representational drawings, paintings. And the most important part was that the patients were able to choose their top three. And we, we always joke that the patients are like, well, now I have three portraits of myself around my home, right? But, but so, so when we, when we talk about the product, sorry, that's also, um, I think that's my experience as an artist. That's also a development of the research, but I do want to hit on an important point that you just made me think of. We use something called the Toronto Empathy Questionnaire, which I'm not sure y'all are familiar with. It's like a really validated tool, like that it's 16 questions that measure empathy. And over the course of listening to these patient narratives and actually clinician narratives too, over this, what, how long is a semester? Three months. We saw if an average score um, on this empathy questionnaire, on the Toronto empathy questionnaire is for the average adult of any gender between 43 and like 46. Now, you will know that I skewed, and I can share these um, these diagrams and graphs with y'all after this. We started, so I gave them at the beginning and the end. Now, I did skew towards the students, but I could already tell had great interpersonal and empathic skills. So we started at a 52. Now, the biggest increase was a 52. The highest score you can get is 60. He started at a 52. He got to a 59. Now, on average, the whole class increased their empathy quotients by three points, which is pretty remarkable 
if you think it was really like a, a, a pretty compressed amount of time. Now, the next part of my research is to reach out to that inaugural group annually and see whether or not those empathy scores stay higher or whether they dip after they leave the class. I mean, it's just another thing that I'm going to continue tracking as we have more and more cohorts go through. That is awesome. And what makes it really cool is, as you've mentioned several times, we are in such an unusual cycle right now where they are probably having a greater opportunity to practice those skills than they would have had at any other time. And so I think we can be hopeful with you that because they will be meeting many people in need of empathy, that they not only will utilize that skill set, but they're going to be able to potentially build on it. They can't score higher than 60, though. That is really (laughs) impressive. No higher than 60. And the one other thing connected to the product and then those, um, you know, the quality, so the qualitative data being the quality of the work and how much in and whether it, it pleased the participants, I guess. And then the quantitative data of this measurable, um, empathy score is this other piece of qualitative data that I think directly connects, which is at the very end, um, of the class, we ask the students about what their attitude towards the audience of their work. Again, I also had administered the very same set of questions at the beginning. What is the importance of the audience and the viewer for your work? At the beginning, it was, you know, I'm the artist, I have ideas, and that's, you know, pretty much what's important. And I really like whatever someone thinks is what they think. By the end of the course, a lot of the written feedback from the student voices was the audience of my work has become increasingly important via this curriculum. And I think that's directly connected to empathy. And I think it's made them better artists and people. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really, I, I hear you really inviting students to go through a practical experience, which I guess that's one of the great things we get to do in the arts, right? We're very experiential. And to give them a reflective stance on it. And I love that there's like two ways or a lot of ways you're having them reflect both in making work and like feeling what you think about that and writing about it. So we have both of those those exit points. How do you think those sorts of practices feed out your other courses? Like when they're not in this, this, I mean, this is an amazing course, but are there elements of this course that then you carry over into other things you teach or do? Things we can all learn from you and what you're doing as teachers who may not teach this same amazing course that you're working on. I think that's, um, that's something I haven't directly thought about before, but the first thing that comes to mind is I am a professor who takes my students out into the world, no matter what I'm teaching, and I want them to see the world as their studio. So whether they're in aesthetics of health or whether they're in my my first year drawing classes, we, my biggest, I would rather them see themselves as responsible citizens who who should, can, and must think of their role as artists, as citizen artists, right? So how can they improve the world around them than for them to be so focused on becoming these like hyper-realistic drawing students? So, so we do, so where I see this practice show up, right, is like I take them, maybe we're probably like at this point, outside of the class, out of the studio, the traditional studio, at least 
30 to 40 percent right of the class of the semester so we are going to like the herbarium the collection of all the plant species in the tower we go to like the insect collection that's like near do you guys know um we go to oh oh we go to um actually we go to the football stadium to learn perspective and we often encounter what's great about that is like we encounter a lot of um uh, construction workers who are working to improve that and they'll come up and talk to the students so it's a lot about risk taking doing artwork in public spaces we go on walking architectural tours um, starting at the Capitol and then crossing all the way down to the south side of Ladybird Lake. And, and that's also to encourage them to get out of the university and to start to see Austin. And this was all also a thing I was doing previous to COVID, previously to COVID, but it just fit very well. And as we moved through the last two years, but I'm thinking about a particular walking tour we did where we started at the Austin Public Library in the spring. And then we wound down into, I call it the wealthy power walking area. I think I know know. where you're going, yes. (laughs) You know where I'm going. I do. And so so what we talked a a bit about is, you know, I I think of myself as this, like, this is where my performance art training comes in. I'm, like, giving an unofficial guided tour to inequities, right? Because right there, you know, we are walking and there are very well-groomed people speed walking past a lot of tents, right? And 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 I'm not say, sitting there saying, and this is the homeless encampment that the city's not doing anything about. But that was an intentional route to have them see it. And, and if I say you have to do 50 drawings on this two-hour walking tour, you are sure as hell that they're going to take every opportunity to notice what's around them. I don't let them on their phones at all. That sort of social, pro- drawing and art as social practice filters into every class I teach. Megan, I listen to you and I think about your work as a, a sort of primer in how to human better, how to listen how to have reciprocity and exchange in, in when folks are sharing back and forth, how to empathize, how to slow down to see. I mean, we can, we can quote out all the ed theorists who say all those things I just said, but like I, one of the things I appreciate about what you are doing in your work is, is giving students like deeply practical ways to go and live those ideas and to put them into action. And those experiences, they're going to remember, I guarantee, a lot more than if they read about it in a book. Now, that's not to say I don't give them like contextual like things about like why I'm doing this, but it's all because of the professors I had in undergrad. We were taught in a very unique way that we were required to do community outreach, as it was called then. I don't know how I feel about that term right now. Every semester. And that was that wasn't just Holly. That was everyone, right? So, sorry, Dixie, you had something. No, no. I just from what Katie said, it just made me realize that they're going to remember it more because you have them reflect through their art, and they create out of their experience. So, where for me in my world, we talk about muscle memory and the importance of novel movement patterns. What you're talking about is a similar thing in that. By challenging them with novel experiences, you groove that much more deeply into their being 
by letting them create something out of it. This has me thinking about how can I have my students create new things that that will actually help grow those experiences. Yeah, and I feel like there's something that's so healing-centered around all of that. I mean, we're thinking a lot of trauma-informed spaces around teaching and learning, and certainly there is a lot of trauma folks are dealing with in loads of ways right now. But what I am struck by is a generative way that this feels very healing-centered. I mean, kind of circling back to the arts and health space. Absolutely. And I also want to emphasize, you know, we do, we have these experiences. They, you know, have to work together to be like, what bus do we take? How do we get to Mount Bunnell? And their little brains are like broken. It's fine. I call them, I say they have little brains all the time. It's fine. It's like my love language to them. Um, but I am always saying like, okay, we're meeting at Mount, Mount Bunnell at 2.30. Figure it out. Do your little group me. Do your little whatever. Wear your mask in the car. Get on the bus. Or walk, which is a ha- very healthy practice all the way to Mount Pinnell, and we're going to learn perspective drawing, right? So there's also like a them forming a specific little community and microcosm that if you're going to be in a class with me, you will be having to tell each other what bus to take, right? And like, that's another way to community build. So we have these experiences, but I also want to emphasize that like that reflection is not just in what they make that day. It also becomes formalized into like into traditional art critique language. Once we come back and I say, all right, if you did 50 drawings of our tour of Lady Bird Lake and, you know, I'm, I'll say, um, I want you to do maybe like a three foot by nine foot, like a large drawing that combines all of those images, whether you're making a collage, whether you are projecting and tracing over it, that's an invented space based on that experience. And then the the language of critique is about proportion form. So I just want to emphasize that like, like, like the quality of the work is not compromised by taking alternative pedagogical approaches. And I think that's something that some colleagues in, in, in some places can be a little wary of is like, well, how are they learning observational drawing? Well, they are. You can observe in many different ways other than sitting around a still life, even though I do that too. We do that too. So I just wanted to emphasize that like the art is still making a lot of technical strides despite my more experimental methodology. Well, we are all about experiential learning on this podcast. And so we love hearing this and we know that there are really no boundaries to that. And what's beautiful and what you're doing is really applying out of your own life and sharing that with your students. One question that comes up regularly is, if I was going to get a tattoo based on what you hear me say all the time, what would it be? And one of the things that I hear back from my students is that nothing is wasted, that everything has value if we are willing to be open to learning and curious and engaged and caring and kind. So I wonder, if you were going to get a tattoo, what would it be? Oh my gosh, that's the best Are question you, like, ever, Dixie. Come up with- I, that's the best question ever. Dixie, do you want me to like design a meme for myself right now? Like, that's what I feel like. <laughs> Jeez. Like. What would, the, what would the graphic be? 
I think it would just be a lot of arrows pointing to one another and then back to the self. Oh, I'd love that. I think it would just be that, right? Like that constant feedback loop of Uh I care about you, you care about me, and I'm going to help you grow. And you're already helping me grow just by being in the Mm. room with me. Ooh, goosebumpy. I love that. Oh, perfect way to wrap this up. Uh Oh my gosh, this was such a delight. Thank you so much, everyone. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Our executive producer is Mary Newberger. Our producer is Michelle Daniel. And our music and sound design are by Charlie Harper Music at charlieharpermusic.com. For more information, please visit us online at texasptf.org. We hope you'll join us next time on The Other Side of Campus. Thank you and listening and interconnection. Well, I'm so glad to be connected to you through the other side of campus. I wish I could say it like Michelle, but it's never going to (laughs) happen. No, that was pretty good. Thanks. (laughs) Good to see you.